Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live, on stage, and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our feature storytellers spin some epic yarns in Spin, our fifth show in our action theme season held on March 28, 2017 at Jump in downtown Boise. Here are our featured storytellers, Glida Bothwell, Rocky Wing, and Brandon Wallen. It's time to take action. It's story time. Welcome, Glida, onto the featured storyteller mic. Well, I love to dance. I've always loved to dance, and I could do, I used to do any kind of dance, ballroom dancing, jazz, uh, we used to do the twist, and the monkey, and, and the funky chicken, or a lot of those songs, and um, we would dance to, uh, you know, just about any kind of music. and. Um, my favorite kind of dance was to just do my own thing and kind of dance to the music and make up my own steps, and that was always fun. But I really love ballet. Oh, I just love ballet. When I was six years old, I took ballet lessons, and I just thought it was just, oh, I was just enthralled. I thought it was just wonderful. And I just said, I want to be a ballerina. That's my dream. I want to be a ballerina. Um, but my parents moved, and they couldn't afford ballet lessons for five girls, so I didn't take any more ballet lessons. And then, when I was uh, in the 50s, uh, when I was 10 years old, and you can do the math, figure out how old I am, but anyway, we, we had a black and white 12-inch TV, and one night they had a professional ballet team on TV, and I just, I just was, I thought it was in heaven. And I just said, that's what I want to do. It's not just a dream. I really want to be a ballet dancer. I just love the movements and the dances, the dancers and the costumes. So I could just envision myself in the spotlight, spinning and turning in the spotlight. And I had a silver tiara, and I had on white tights, and I had on a little tutu with all the lace and the, the netting that comes out, you know, these big tutus. And, and of course, I had the pink toe shoes. And um, I just just dreamed of doing that. Well, instead, I fell in love and I got married to my husband, who I've been married to for 50 years, sitting right there. <laughs> and I, I wanted to have a family and um, get married, so I gave up my ballerina career. Uh, anyway, let's see, where do I go from here? Okay, well, I love to dance. And when I was 40, I decided to take ballet lessons. But, um, and I loved the, the movements and on the wooden bar and all that. But when we came to the part where you spin and you go across the floor and you have to do this thing with your head, and I thought I was gonna throw up or fall down or both. So that was the end of my ballet lessons and I didn't even get to wear the toe shoes. Oh, well, I just get my thrill from watching ballet on TV or on the stage. Well, like I said, I really love to dance. And then there was that dance. In 1972, 
my husband, we were in the Air Force Base at Mountain Home Air Force Base, and my husband was in uh, Thailand for the Vietnam War, and actually his roommate went on a mission and he never came back. So my husband's roommate was one of the last seven soldiers to be killed in the Vietnam War. Well, here he's dealing with that, and I'm at home feeling like the lonely military wife. And so um, they were having all-you-can-eat shrimp, shrimp feed at the club, O Club, the officers club. So I got together with a couple friends and um, I got a babysitter for our two-year-old and um, we went off to the, to the shrimp feed. And um, they had a band and they were playing music from that era like uh, Loggins and Messina, um, what was theirs? Uh, your mama can't dance and your dad can't rock and roll. Oh, some of you remember it, okay, that's good. <laughs> and um, and uh, what's uh, Loggins and Messina and um, Oh, the Doobie Brothers, it was, listen to the music, oh, listen. I could dance better than I can sing, that's for sure. <laughs> so that was the kind of music they were playing, and of course, lots of Beatles songs, lots of Beatles songs. So we, everybody was just grooving and dancing. Well, everybody was up on the dance floor but me, and that's, you know, I just aching to dance, but I didn't really want to dance by myself. And um, everybody was dancing and spinning and just having a wonderful time. And I noticed a young man was sitting next to the band, and he was sitting there and not really doing anything. He must have been the grip or the helper or the van driver or something. And he was also, he's like, oh, I could tell he was really itching to dance and get up there. So after a couple of gin and tonics, maybe more than a couple, <laughs> I was feeling a little uninhibited. So I motioned to him, I said, well, you know, Come on, let's let's go do this. So he, his grin just lit up the room. So we got up on the dance floor, and we're both doing our own thing, just you know, rocking and rolling and and moving to the to the beat of our own drummer, and just having a great time. And all of a sudden, the music stops, and everybody looks around, and everybody's on the dance floor, like, what's going on here? And suddenly, this big, tall, angry—he must have been a colonel, or I don't know—he was pretty high up, I guess. He's just shouting and yelling. And the band's looking around and, and, you know, they stop playing and they're kind of upset. What's going on? And this colonel or whatever he was, he's pointing and shouting at the young man I'm dancing with. And it's like, you know, what, what's going on here? And, um, and I'm thinking, well, you know, was I dancing too wild or is he upset because I'm dancing with someone who's not my husband, and it's because he's not an officer, and he's young. Well, he was upset because I was dancing with the young black man. And I was just, I was already heated from dancing and getting a couple of drinks, and all of a sudden there was this crowd. I mean, I was felt like totally surrounded, and everybody's yelling and whatever, And but I just stood up to this six-foot-tall guy and my five-foot-three, I tiptoed and I said, you racist, and I yelled at him, shouted him, and oh my gosh, I, I didn't know what I said after that or what he said. <laughs> but it was, it was like I was just so upset, and then, and then I started to feel bad because this, this poor kid that I'd asked to dance with me, I guess he's gonna, I don't know what's gonna happen. And um, I have to tell you that this was very upsetting to me because when I grew up, my parents said, everybody's the same, whether your skin is black or white, and you know, people are all the same. And when I was like in the late 40s, we'd go on the train, um, 
and we went to the Cincinnati train station, and I was kind of shocked, because we came from a little town in Indiana, and I'd never seen this before. And they had signs over the water fountains, colored, which is what they said in those days, and white. And the restroom said colored and white over the doors. And my mother just, she said, that's not right. That's just not right. And then in the 1950s, we lived in a, the small town, and we had a little neighborhood swimming pool. And one day, a little black boy got into the pool, and many of the neighbors, they pulled their kids out of the pool, and they said, just get out here, we're gonna take you home. My mother says, no, you don't need to get out. You can stay in the pool, and he has a right to be here as much as you, it's a hot day. You know, it's not a problem. So that's what I grew up with, and I was very incensed that this guy was, was getting after this young man. You know, I guess he thought he was protecting my honor, or you know, that this young man had the audacity to dance with me, even though I asked him to dance. So um, it was pretty bad scene. My friends finally, back to, to there, we, they pulled me out, took me outside, and calmed me down, and it was cool outside, and, and I just, I was really embarrassed, I was humiliated, because I had, you know, humiliated this young man, and, you know, they stopped playing the music, and it was just kind of a riot. And so I got calmed down, and they took me home, and it was fine. And when my husband came home, he was very understanding and very supportive, and he thought the guy's being a jerk, too. So, um, you know, I think that, I wonder, you know, would that happen today? You know, was that, you think about, would that kind of thing happen today? Well, no, because I'm not sure any young man would want to dance with a silver-haired grandma. <laughs> but other than that, you know, there's many... Uh, now there's black colonels in the Army and the Air Force, and people can marry who they want, they can have children, they can dance who with, they, with who they want, and um, they can drink out of the same water fountains, and they can use the same restrooms, and um, you know, sit in the, in the bus wherever they want, and that kind of thing. And I just, um, it, it's really, it's kind of been a thing that's in my mind for some time, and I, I still was kind of feeling a little embarrassed about it, and, a little humiliated because of what I did to this young man. And, but then I, after I matured and I thought, well, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. We just wanted to dance. So I, I hope that the young man has either forgotten about it or he's forgiven me and that he is still spinning around the dance floor. Thank you. Help. I need Rocky Wing. Nice. I thought you were going to do Eye of the Tiger or something. <laughs> so, um, in January, uh, my wife and I conceive our fourth child, uh, ends up being a daughter. Uh, if you've ever been pregnant before, not that I have, but I've heard that weird sort of ho hormone things happen. So I remember it was, it was February when we were uh, intimate again. And then all those hormones die down and uh, things get cramped and uncomfortable and, and big. And, and, and so we uh, weren't intimate again uh, all the way through uh, her birth, which was in, in September, uh, my fourth child and, and third daughter. And then, and then things are kind of weird, you know, because everything needs to heal up and go back to normal size. And, and I, get, 
I, I get all that, but uh, <laughs> not personally, experientially get it, but understand it. And, uh, but then all of a sudden it's, it's February again, and we haven't been intimate for a year now. And now it's February again, and it's been two years. And now it's February again, and it's been three years. Uh, I'm a little slow, I guess, apparently. Um, I need, I need the, the record to go around a couple times before I realize there's a skip in it. And, uh, and that's when I suddenly realized that my life was uh, spinning out of control. And then it's February again, and it's been four years. And uh, I can't tell anyone about this. I can't tell any of my friends or any of my coworkers because um, I'm a pastor at one of the largest churches in the Portland area. And part of what it means to be a pastor is that you're supposed to be an example. And part of what it means to be an example is you're supposed to have a, a great marriage. And I knew mine was not. So now all of a sudden I'm spinning two plates. I'm, I'm one way at home with this, this marriage that's deteriorating and I'm another way in the church. And all of a sudden it's February again and it's five years, and it's February again, and now it's six years. And it was the summer after uh, six years that I realized that this, um, this marriage was not going to work out. And I decided in my heart, though I didn't say it out loud, that I was going to get a divorce. And the reason I didn't say it out loud is because it's one thing to have marital problems as a pastor. You just can't get a divorce and remain a pastor. And I'd wanted to be a pastor ever since I was 16. I, I went to a four-year Bible college. I still have the debt to prove it that I like, it's the only thing I'm qualified for, friends, is to be a pastor. And, and, and not only that, but it, what would it mean for my kids? What would it mean for my family? What would it mean for my career, for my passion, for my identity? Uh, all of my friends, my entire community was, was wrapped up in being this. And now all of a sudden, another plate gets added on that I'm trying to spin. And in the midst of this uh, brokenness and loneliness and exhaustion, in walks Ari, this beautiful, amazing woman. And, and we start Facebook messaging each other late at night. And we're riding back and forth, and I, I begin to tell her things about my life, things in my soul that I've never told anyone before. She has the first key to my soul. And we're, we're talking back and forth every night. And then it's this one night, it was a Wednesday night, and I'm at the church, and I'm in my office, and she's there too because it was, a, it was an event, and she was a leader at the church, and we're sitting there in my office. I'm sitting, she's standing, and we're just talking back and forth, back and forth, and then all of a sudden with no precursor, no introduction, no anything, she just turns and sits on my lap, and everything stopped. <laughs> everything stopped, and I remember she leaned her head back against mine and, and her hair just kind of fell over my face and I put my hand on her hip and, and we're just like that for a moment. And then I pushed her away 
And I sat her down on the seat in front of me and I grabbed her hands and I'm like, okay, we need to talk about this because I don't know what's going on. My life is crazy right now, but I know that I'm so drawn to you. And so we started our secret relationship and I found myself spinning a fourth plate. She was going to college at the time, and in order to save money, was living with her parents. I, of course, was at home with my family, and my only work, I was a pastor at a church, and so we never really got to connect in any sort of way. So we continued the Facebook tradition, sometimes till 1 a.m., 2 a.m., or we'd see each other across the foyer in the church and just give each other a look that was only for us. We had certain songs that we would listen to as we would travel around with other church members and we would just mouth them out to each other, hoping that we would never get caught. And then there was the camp that we went to, the camp that I went on a stage like this, where I preached Jesus for about 300 middle schoolers. And we arranged it for that night for her to come into my cabin. At this point, I was living so many lives that I didn't even know who I was anymore. But I remember after that very special moment between me and her that I turned her to me and we faced each other and I said, I want you to know this, Ari, that that now nothing, no one is going to separate us. We're connected now in a very powerful, very unique way. And then January came. We decided as for January 1st, uh, 2016, we made a New Year's resolution to break up because the deal was is that we didn't want to be found out. If we were found out, that was the end of everything. And I had this great plan. My idea was is we would break up and then I would go and talk to my leadership of the church and tell them I was getting a divorce and then I would, I would take care of that and then maybe a year or two years down the road, then we would pretend like we started dating and then we would get married and nobody would ever know that we had an affair. Like that was my plan and that was great. Spinning that plate for the whole month of January, but then the guilt and the shame just pressed down on me. Not just the guilt of what I had done, but the guilt of what I intended to do. That there was going to be this plate, this lie, this secret self that I was going to live with my whole life. And I would never be able to get out of that. So I decided the only way to stop the spinning was to let them all crash on the ground. And the last week in January, I walked into my leadership's office and I told them everything that I just told you. Now, that was a Tuesday. On Friday, I had lost my job. On Saturday morning, I confessed everything to my wife and moved out of the house. The following weekend, they announced it to the church that Pastor Rocky had committed adultery and was removed from the church. By Monday, a mass email was sent out to anybody who wasn't there on that particular weekend. And just so you know, wondering where Pastor Rocky is, here is where he is. And that was on February again, seven years. February, March, and April were very dark months for me. I got a job, but one of the only things I was qualified for, which was uh, making fertilizer for marijuana plants out in uh, Oregon <laughs> for 11 bucks an hour. And as, as I knew that I'd hurt the community so deeply, I decided that I was going to listen to whatever the leadership told me to do, and part of that was you're not to make contact with Ari, so I didn't. And in the midst of all this thinking that I was trying to do right, uh, being fully repentant, all I got was judgment. 
All I got was Facebook message after Facebook message and text and everything in between and emails and everything just telling me how terrible I was. How I was basically a deceiver, a liar, that I was Satan himself incarnate. Finally, after getting kicked out of three churches, being told I wasn't even welcome through the doors, I was like, if this is what it means to do it right, I'm going to do it wrong. And I called Ari on the phone. I'm like, we have to meet. And she's like, okay. And so we did it. We met. We went to a park, and somebody from the church saw us together. And instead of talking to us, they talked to the pastor. The pastor, instead of talking to us, talked to her parents. Her parents said this, you are not allowed to see him anymore. And if you walk out of that door right now to see him, you are not welcome back in. And that's how we first came to live with each other. And on a, um, <laughs> and on a Thursday night where we got matching couples tattoos, <laughs> um, we got a text from her father that said, call me right now. So she called him and he said, you have to get to the hospital right now. Uh, your mom has just had a brain aneurysm. The doctors are giving her a 3% chance of making it. I say, take the keys, go. She calls me about 2 in the morning and says, it's getting bad. It's getting worse. I said, do you want me there? She said, yes. And that is how her extended family found out about me because it quickly became apparent through the hours as her mom is on life support, that I'm not there for the family, that I'm there for her. And that Friday night, her mom just passed away. We decided now, since her family knew, we should let the whole world know, so we became Facebook official. As of the uh, last count, there were uh, 15 teary-eyed faces and three angry faces about <laughs> Uh, our relationship and many more defriendings over Facebook, many more messages, many more texts, many more uh, things of, of judgment and judgment and judgment. We've been trying to move to the Boise area for the, um, for the past couple months because my, my kids now, who are 13, 11, 9, and my youngest that was born in September is, is 7, they live in Ontario. So that's why we made a New Year's resolution that we moved here in January. January 1st, we moved to Boise again. And, and uh, people often ask me after I've told this story, they ask the two questions, you know, well, uh, what about God and, and what about your kids? Now, the God question is tricky. I believe that that's one that's still kind of spinning. We haven't gone back to church. I think we're still a little tender about that. We, we, we both miss it. We miss the community. We miss uh, playing music on the stage. We miss, we miss serving. It's, it's hard to make friends in a new city. Uh, that's the truth. And, um, but I don't think we're ready to be rejected again. So I don't know what we're waiting for. <laughs> we're just kind of timid. And, and it's, it's the way that I explain it is it's hard to go into a place where you keep on hearing that the dad loves you but the kids want you out, you know? So I don't know, we're still dealing with that. Uh, as far as my, my kids go, they come in and see us every weekend and it's been this strange transition because all of a sudden, remember Ari from church? Well, she's dad's girlfriend now. So yes, it's awkward, it's strange. I never thought that I would be here uh, yet. Um, 
yet here I am, and we're, we're trying to rebuild and, and uh, rebuild this family. But there, there still is one more plate that's been spinning now uh, for a while, uh, for a long while. And ever since September 19th of 2015, this plate has been spinning, and that was the, the morning, it was early morning, about 1.45 a.m., on September 19th, 2015, when uh, I first kissed Ari. And it was in that one kiss that I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And so this is the, the thing, it's really a, a question, I guess, for you, Ari. You are uh, my best friend, you're my soulmate. <laughs> You're the, the greatest love of my life. You're the most beautiful, kindest person I have ever come across. You were the one that got the first key to my soul. And I have something for you. Just hold on a second. Because this is a question that I have for you that's been spinning ever since it came in the mail last week. Please welcome to the stage, Brandon Whalen. I am a recreational cyclist. Um, probably 10 years ago, I was a desert racer, racing motorcycles through the desert and enjoyed it. Um, and thought, you know, if I'm going to get any higher in the standings, I need to be in better physical fitness. And so I thought I should spend time riding a bicycle, and that will get me physically fit. And very, very quickly, I realized I just like riding my bicycle better than racing a motorcycle out there in the desert. So it just slowly became a part of my life. And um, I haven't driven a car to work in over seven years. It's just every day, it's something that... I, it's one of the things that I absolutely look forward to. I wish, honestly, I lived a little further away from work because it's, it's only like a mile and a half I get done in like 10 minutes, and I'm like, crud, you know? Because it's, it's a calming time, and I can, I'm alone in my thoughts, and um, I just, I truly enjoy it. But then I reflect back, you know, not every ride is good. Sometimes you have a mechanical issue. Sometimes the wind, no matter which direction you go, it is in your face or you've got a hill to climb and it never ends. And you know, sometimes it's a struggle and you're telling yourself, I'm doing this because I like it. I'm doing this because I like it. <laughs> but you're struggling the whole way. But other times it can be magical. There are times when you go out there and it seems like the wind is at your back no matter which direction you turn. The hills are short and the downhills are long. You know, you're just fluid with your bike. You're, it's, you're you know, kind of, it's, it's like you're dancing on your bike and, you know, everything is perfect. Maybe you're riding with somebody just having casual conversation and the miles are just clicking by. Maybe you're by yourself and just alone in your thoughts. But those times on a bicycle when you say, hey, that was just a great spin, you were in the zone. And that's what a cyclist is looking for. 
Um, and I would say that my health was in the zone up until last year. I was 46 years old. I didn't have a prescription for anything. I wasn't allergic to anything. And my doctor said, hey, you are a picture of health. So I was pretty happy with that. Things were going good. But something kind of strange started happening. My wife would remark in the morning, what the heck were you dreaming about last night? Because you were freaking out. You were mad. You were yelling, son of a gun, I'm going to kick your... And I'm like, I don't remember any of this. And she's, oh, yeah, it was hilarious. You were screaming and yelling and fighting. And that was funny for a while. But then I started lashing out, kicking and hitting. And that startled her. And I was hitting the headboard and kicking. And we realized quickly that this is serious and this is not something that's fun. And she was almost scared to sleep with me at night. And I never knew when it was going to happen. So we decided to make an appointment with a sleep specialist. He brings me in, hooks me up to all of these machines, and has me sleep and takes a look. And he says, Brandon, clearly you have what's called RBD, which is REM sleep behavioral disorder. And that's a switch in the back of your mind that's supposed to prevent you from acting out your dreams. My switch is faulty. So he said, hey, you know what? We can take care of this. We can medicate this. We can calm you down. And we can take care of this. This is no big deal. But I'm going to send you in for an MRI just to make double-double sure that we're making sure that we're, there's nothing else outside of there that we should be alarmed about. So I go get the MRI, and I go into that machine, and it's spinning around. And I'm just wondering what the heck's going on here, and as it's going around and around, slicing my head one little millimeter at a time, <laughs> trying to see what the heck's going on in there. And so I go back, and I meet with my sleep specialist, and he says, you know what, Brandon, there's something else that we need to talk about. You're pretty young. At 46 years old, being diagnosed with RBD, he goes, that is something that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. And those dreams are putting you in a fight or flight situation. And nine times out of 10, you're fighting. And that's what you're acting out. And there is a direct correlation between an early diagnosis of RBD and Parkinson's disease. But now I want to talk to you about your MRI. Brandon, I'm seeing things in your MRI that I'm not comfortable with. I'm going to send you to a neurologist. So I go to a neurologist. And she takes a look, look at the MRI. And she said, I'm, I'm really disappointed here. Brandon, I'm seeing white matter and lesions. And those are very indicative to me of something. But when the radiologist looked at views A, B, and C, they should have known that I needed to see C, D, and E. So I'm going to send you back. We need to get more views of your brain. But I also want to see your stem and your spinal cord. Because I'm going to be honest with you here. I think we're chasing MS. So I'm going to send you back to the MRI machine. So there I go. Now, a heck of a lot more scared. Because now I know we're chasing something. So I go back into that MRI machine. Pachoom, pachoom, ching, 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 ching sounding like rocks rolling in a dryer. And I hear every one of those rocks tumbling around. So we get the results back, and she takes a look, and she said, I'm looking for lesions in time, which means young ones, old ones, and in a middle stage. Or I'm looking for lesions in space, at the periphery of your brain, deep down, on your spinal cord, on your stem. I'm looking for them to be deep in your brain and out on the periphery. 
and I can't quite find that. We're close to making a diagnosis, but not quite. She goes, let's do some blood work. Brandon, have you had any strange, really strong infections, a sickness that was really intense that had you down for, for a week at a time? I'm like, I don't even get colds. I don't know. No, I don't have an infection that could have done something like that. So she drew blood, sent that to the lab, came back negative. She was looking for things like syphilis and other things that, that could have impacted deep in my brain. Come back to her a third time, and she said, Brandon, we're going to close the loop on this. I'm going to get a spinal tap. We're going to extract some uh, cerebral spinal fluid, and we're going to send that off to the lab. And we're looking for two things specifically. One is an elevated protein level in your spinal fluid, spinal column fluid. If it's elevated, that's indicative of MS. But we're also looking for very specific MS markers. Those will take longer to come back. The, the proteins will come back quickly. The markers, it will take about three weeks for those to come back. Well, the proteins came back, and as could be expected, they were elevated. But then the markers came back negative. So I go back to her, and she says, Brandon, I can't close the diagnosis here. Everything is leading me to, to make the diagnosis of MS, but I can't quite close the loop on that. And I walk out the door, and I am frustrated. I went in to talk to somebody about cussing or fighting in the middle of my sleep, but now I'm facing Parkinson's disease. I might have MS, and nobody knows, and I am frustrated. And I go back to my sleep specialist, and I'm frustrated, and I voice this to him. What's going on? I don't have any answers here. And these are things that are going to debilitate me for the rest of my life. I want answers now. And he says, Brandon, you are looking at this the absolute, entirely wrong direction. He said, yes, you have RBD, and we can manage that, okay? Yes, you might get Parkinson's disease, but that is years down the road. And who knows how well we will be able to manage that when and if that happens. As far as MS is concerned, you are non-symptomatic. You don't have anything wrong with your vision. You've got your strength. There's no numbness. There are a small percentage of people that get diagnosed with, diagnosed with MS, and they never show a single symptom. You might be that lucky person. You might have something that debilitates you in the future. But you know what? Go live your life today because you don't have any restrictions whatsoever. You might have restrictions in the future. Deal with them when they come, but don't deal with them before they come. And that's what I needed to hear. So I got back on my bike because it grounds me. It gives me time to think of where I came, where I'm at now, and where I'm going. And so that was 2016, and so I decided 2017 was going to be something great. I'm going to get outside of myself and I'm going to reach out and try to do something beyond what is in my comfort zone. So I've decided to participate in the Smoke and Fire 400. The Smoke and Fire 400 is a bicycle race that starts here in Boise. Uh, it goes out to Bonneville Point and then basically you hit gravel and dirt roads and you have everything with you that you will need to ride 400 miles on a bicycle. I'll have my tent, I'll have clothes, I will have food, water, I will also have supplies in case I get flat tires or a broken chain, things of that nature. 
And basically, you embark upon this ride. It can take, the winners are gonna do it in like two and a half days. Those guys are crazy. Uh, they're maybe riding 18, 19, maybe they're riding all 24 hours, I don't know. Um, but the race starts September 13th. My 47th birthday is September 22nd. So I'm giving myself nine days to finish it. Now I'm hoping to do it a little quicker than that, but I'm gonna give myself nine days to finish this ride. Um, and also, I kind of wanted to make it, like I said, bigger than myself, and I wanted to get outside my comfort zone, and I've decided to ride for the Hope House. And if you're not familiar with the Hope House, that's a place out in Marsing um, that really is a receiving place for children who need a helping hand, who need that, that, those arms around them. These are children, they might have behavioral disorders, they might have medical issues, um, but they've been put up for adoption, and for whatever reason, they were more than their adoptive family could, could handle, and so they've been returned. And there's nowhere to return a failed adopted child. And that's where the Hope House comes in. Uh, they embraced them, they said, this is your home until you're 18 years old, you will not be sent out the door, so the attachment issues that these kids have can hopefully then begin to dissipate. They're given shelter, food, schooling, uh, and a place to call home. And so uh, I'm gonna do the Smoke and Fire 400. I'm gonna ride for, for the Hope House. I'm looking forward to my opportunity to be in the Central Mountains uh, of Idaho riding my bicycle. Uh, I will be, my wheels will be spinning for, um, I'll be thinking, you know, my, my mind will be spinning thinking about the health issues that I might be faced with. My cranks and wheels will be spinning because I know every revolution is doing something for those kids in the Hope House who deserve far more that they, than they have been given so far in this world. Um, also, uh, I will be spinning my wheels for joy because my bicycle is a time machine and when I am on my bicycle, I am absolutely playing and having fun, and I'm looking forward to 400 miles of fun in the Central Mountains of Idaho. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the spin show sponsor, Upcycle. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Our musical guest is DJ IGA, the independent grocer. And show photography is by Paul Budge. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Thank you.